So in, in 1992, I want to tell you a bit of a story about 1992. In 1992, there was a, a situation where there were uh, a couple of scuba divers that entered into a cave. And there was one that was more experienced, one that was less experienced, and they're in the cave, they're exploring the cave, everything is going well, uh, until the less experienced diver uh, motions to his lead that he can't breathe. And the lead looks over at him, and it's okay, you know, every scuba diver, I understand, I've never done this before, uh, has a backup regulator, the oxygen mask. And, and he took off his backup regulator, hands it over to uh, this diver that was experiencing panic and was, was concerned, and, uh, and was able to, to redeem the situation. But in the process, what they've done is, if you've ever watched cave diving, maybe on Netflix or something, they let go of that tether that was leading them out of the cave. And they drifted to the bottom of the cave. And they'd stirred up the muck and, and the dust and the things at the bottom of the cave. And so disorientation was a real thing. You can imagine them there in the dark. In the dark, uh, their, their flashlights not really working any longer as, as the dust comes up. And long story short, uh, what ended up happening that day was a tragedy. The guide made it out of the cave, but Adams, the, the, the younger guy, the less experienced guy, Rolf Adams, he ended up uh, succumbing to his fear and to his panic and dying that day. And the question after these events happened that, that people investigating the situation asked is what killed Adams? Was it his regulator? Or was it something else? Well, as they investigated, it became clear that his regulator was per working perfectly fine. It actually wasn't his regulator that was, that was a problem at all. What killed Adams was his fear that led him to doubt the life that came through his regulator. Fear that led to doubt that turned him away from the life that was in his regulator. Now, this morning, Christ City, we're not scuba diving. <laughs> There's no bubbles coming up from the congregation, from you guys this morning. Clearly that's not happening, and you might be wondering why I'm telling this story. Well, I'm telling this story because as we come to Psalm 73, it is true that like Asaph, the psalmist who's telling us his own testimony in Psalm 73, we also live in a world where we experience fear and doubt about where life is. I do that. I feel fearful and doubtful at times about where true life can be found. Where can I go to take hold of life that is truly life. But there is good news for us, Christ City, because as we turn to the Word of God this morning, we can be confident that we have a guide. We have a good guide leading us toward life. And as we look at this psalm, it's my prayer that we be encouraged to take hold of that guide, to take hold of that life, which is truly life. So we're going to look at Psalm 73. We have a three-point outline. We're going to look at Asaph as he shares his doubt the place that he gained his perspective, and the life that he found. We're going to look at life, or doubt, sorry, perspective, and life. So let's jump in right away and look with me at verses 1 to 3 in the way that Asaph sets up the story. He says this, he says, Truly God is good to Israel. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Psalms 73 
to 83 are the Psalms of Asaph. They're the ones that have been put together by the canonicalers. He you know, puts the Psalms together, and, and this is a section uh, that we have here that are the Psalms of Asaph. And we don't know exactly what the context was in Asaph's, Asaph's life that led to the writing of Psalm 73. But there are some clues in Psalm 73 to Psalm 83, the sorts of things that Asaph experienced in his life. He lived at a time when Israel was facing uh, opposition from enemy nations. There were people that were coming around and threatening to attack and to, to overrun Israel. And actually, later on in Asaph's life, uh, we see from the rest of his Psalms that he would have experienced the destruction of the temple and the exile of God's people as they were taken away from uh, this land that they were part of. We also know from the prophets around that time that, uh, that the reason for this exile was because of Israel's sin. What Asaph would have, would have seen was the way that God's people were not loving God and they were not loving neighbor. But actually they were oppressing one another. The rich were getting very, very rich, very, very comfortable, living for themselves in direct disobedience to the word of God at the expense of those around them. Uh, they were pursuing other gods, serving other things, and their lives turning away from him. And it's in this context, using the medium of ancient poetry, that Asaph goes on to describe the way he's watching these people live in opposition to God and seem to flourish for it and grow envious of it and begin to doubt that following God in obedience actually led to life. Look at the way that Asaph describes this envious perspective in verses 4 to 15. He looks at these people who've turned away from God and turned away from love of neighbor, and he says this, for they have no pangs until death. There's always healthy people. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And therefore, pride is their necklace. They're arrogant about their opposition to God. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. It's a pretty vibrant image. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. And then Asaph complains, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Now one of the things that I love about the Psalms is the poetry of the Hebrew language. It's so rich and descriptive, isn't it? So rich and descriptive, but at the same time, it's clearly not written by an English speaker from our generation. If you have any questions about that, I want to encourage you to go home and tell your spouse or your roommate that uh, their bodies are flat, fat and sleek and that their eyes swell out through fatness and see what kind of response you get from them. And if you've tried that, Already, uh, maybe you know that it's not a good idea. It's, the culture is not ours, but Asaph is describing this prosperity that he's seeing. Even though the culture doesn't fit ours, actually even today, I don't know if you know this, in some non-Western contexts, there was a view of prosperity and a view of beauty that fit more, and even today still fits more with what Asaph 
experienced. I was uh, in, back in 2001, I was on a, a trip um, to Africa, and I was with this team of people, and we were working on building an orphanage. And while we were there, some of the people on our team kept receiving unwanted attention from the Africans around them. And they were complimenting them using kind of the language of these psalms. And those on our team became very, very uncomfortable to keep hearing these things because the standards of beauty and of prosperity in Zambia and in Canada are very, very different. So it's strange to us, but Asaph is describing really this prosperity of the wicked. It's kind of like he's uh, in a Vanity Fair or a Vogue or a People article listing all of the lifestyles and the prosperity and the beauty uh, of the rich and the famous. And Asaph is looking at that as a follower of God. He's becoming jealous of it. He wants it. And he's fearful that he's missing out on the good life. He begins to doubt that life following God is good at all. Look again at verses 12 to 14. Behold, these are the wicked, he says. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. It's in vain that I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the the day long, what do I get for following God? I'm stricken. I get rebuked for it every morning. Can you relate to Asaph at all? Like in our lives today, can you relate to him? Have you experienced as a Christian living in Vancouver in 2021, looking at the world around you, this sense that, that maybe I'm missing out on something? A bit of a fear that I, I'm missing out on the good life, that maybe it's out there. Have you experienced that? Has it, has it worked in your heart to create some doubt? To wonder, is following God really good? Is following him in obedience, is it really the good life? I think many of you probably have experienced that, and I'll be the first to say I've experienced it myself. And this is a common experience, I think, for us as Christians, as we suffer with Jesus, we follow him in this Christian life, looking forward, uh, experiencing his presence now, but looking forward to eternity as you look around at the world around us. And I think there's actually two areas that we can single out in our lives that produce this fear of missing out and this doubt in our lives in 2020 in Vancouver, 2021 in Vancouver. And I'd like to, to share them with you. I think the two areas, these are not the only areas, but I think these, these two areas that are significant areas that, that provoke this fear and this doubt are, are these. The first one is just like Asaph, I think wealth and prosperity can be at issue here. I think wealth and prosperity can be at issue. After all, as Christians, we know what Jesus said, right? In Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus told his disciples this. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then Jesus hammers the nail home in the last line. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. Right? And I think we know that. I think we, we know that we see it in scripture, but, but that means that as Christians, there are times in our lives when we have God as our God rather than wealth and prosperity. And as God is our God and we make decisions in our lives to build wealth with him in obedience to him, following him in his kingdom, it means that we give up at times opportunities for greater prosperity. 
opportunities for greater wealth because we value something more than those things in our society. We value our life with God and obedience to him. But as we do that, there's an opportunity for fear and doubt to sink in, right? I, I've experienced this. I'm sure the story quite a lot, but when I first moved to Vancouver, uh, from the place where I moved, there was a bit of a culture shock in terms of the wealth, the disparity in wealth. Uh, when I uh, left where I was living, the place where I was living before coming here, um, I kind of looked at a Prius and thought it was an exotic car, right? And I'm like, man, this is, there's, there's something really foreign here. It's not a Ford or a GMC. Uh, you know, here's, here's something exotic. And then I moved to South Granville when we first moved to Vancouver, and there were Rolls Royces in my alleyway. And I thought, now this is a little bit different. Clearly, I'm not in, in the lifestyle that I was part of before this. And I struggle with that. In the context of all of this wealth and all of this prosperity and people going up and up and up and moving forward and forward and forward, I began to doubt. I come to Vancouver as a pastor. I didn't come here to, to earn a, you know, a, a greater income and a greater comfort for myself. And I began to wonder, what can Jesus really offer to people who have wealth like this? What can Jesus really offer to people who have wealth like this? Maybe they have the good life. Maybe I've made the wrong decision here. And that's the first arena. I think in this area of wealth, we can, we can experience this temptation, this doubt, this fear. And there's a second arena that's really significant for us in Vancouver, and it's in the arena of sex. Because it's no mystery for us that the Bible's sexual ethic is different than that of the world around us. It's different. Right? The Bible teaches that there is a purpose to sex. Not just personal fulfillment, but mutual comfort, growth in unity, uh, procreation, a stable environment for children to be raised in, in marriage between one man and one woman. This is a teaching of the Bible. And even sex, according to the Bible, is sacred. To be used before God is an act of worship and obedience to him. It's why Paul, talking about sex in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, could say this. That, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. And this is countercultural. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. See, biblical sex is never just sex. It's weighty. It's purposeful. It's significant. It has transcendent meaning in relationship with God. It's never just sex. That's not what the Bible teaches. On the other hand, our culture has uncoupled the sexual reality and sexual experience of human beings from this transcendent relationship with God. And it has become sex is just sex. If it feels good, do it. And actually, if it feels good, do it. And no one should decide except for you how you exercise your sexuality how you explore your sexuality. Thing is, no one longs onto Tinder looking for transcendent meaning. Right? We live in a culture where we have uncoupled sex from transcendence and are pursuing it for our own good under our own design. And if we're honest, when we're single, when we're alone, or when we're married and, and the marriage is a bit stagnant, or struggling, or we're fighting, 
When we're desires or when we are experiencing desires for things that God has forbidden, we can see the teaching of the Bible and we can look at the so-called sexual freedom of those around us and we can doubt. Is this, is this real life? Is this flourishing life what, what I have here? Isn't flourishing life over there doing what they're doing? It just seems so good. And like Asaph, in our fear and doubt, I think in these and in other areas, we can become people who wish we had the things of the world rather than the faith and the life that we have with God. We can want the things of this world rather than that they would have the life and the faith that we've experienced with God. And this is Asaph's testimony. He's experiencing this kind of a struggle. He's in the, the murk at the cave bottom. And he's looking at the regulator that's on his face and he's wondering, is it really going to give me life? What if I just took it off and went that way? Until verses 16 to 17, we're going to look at our second point and where Asaph found perspective. Look at them with me. In that place, Asaph says this. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Christy, I want to be the first to say to you that, that this place of struggling to understand the experience of human beings, of where life can be found, of how purpose and meaning work, it's exhausting. Living at the cave bottom in the murk, trying to sort it out on your own, it's, it's hard. It's an exhausting and frustrating experience. And Asaph says that, when I thought to how, to how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task and then verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. You know what helped Asaph gain true perspective? Essentially, he went to church. He went to join with the worshipers of God together to go to the sanctuary of God, the place where he was one of the worship leaders, by the way, to worship together with God's people. He entered into the temple. And as he entered into the ancient temple, he would have smelt the sacrifices in the air. The burnt offerings being offered, reminding him that, that the problem with this world isn't that he doesn't have the wealth or the sex of this world. The problem is the sin that's in this world that a merciful God has atoned for. That through these sacrifices, he had forgiveness. He had mercy and grace from Almighty God. As he went to the temple, he would have sung songs of worship with God's people, rejoicing, praising together, experiencing God as they worship together in adoration for all of the goodness and the kindness that he's poured out on them. At the temple, he would have heard the word of God being read. He would have heard the instruction that God has given to people who are in the dark trying to figure out how life works. And he would have remembered and seen the way that this truly does bring life. He would have come and seen in the temple, even in the architecture, and the architecture of that ancient temple, there were images of Eden all over that temple. And the way that was supposed to function was to remind the people of God that in God's presence, a new creation was happening, that the new world, the, the hope for a world made new is in relationship with God. And Christ City, we don't have a temple. We have something better. 
We have the church, the temple of God. We don't have a physical building to go to. We have the Holy Spirit of God poured into human hearts as the the resurrected Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven and poured out his spirit of life upon us. And as we come together, we don't see new creation imagery on pillars and on walls. There's no artwork on the sides of the theater. What we see is a new creation imagery in our community as people are being remade in the image of Jesus. As sin is being put to death, as people are finding meaning and fulfillment and life that is truly life in relationship with God through Jesus Christ, their Lord. Christ City, this is what we see as we come together here. And what happens then is as we experience God and his church, it actually rebukes our fear and our doubt and our envy and corrects our perspective in some really beautiful ways. So going back to money for a second. It's as we come to the church that that we realize that a pursuit, a selfish pursuit of greater and greater wealth, it's not life. That's not where life is found. Because in this place, we worship a Savior, King Jesus, who gave up his riches to make the poor rich. Look at 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. The Apostle Paul writes here, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. It's in this community that you see and taste and and learn that life that is truly life is not in a selfish pursuit of more for me. It's actually in an emptying of myself in worship of a Savior who gave me everything. It's in giving my life in obedience to him for the benefit of others as an act of worship. And the reality is that even the culture around us values that, don't they? This generosity, giving to others, it's a value in our culture. There have been some that have said recently that we live as a generation in a culture that demands the highest ethical standards from any other generation before. Or just think of this language of privilege, right? And we're called to give up our privilege to help others. But Christ City, what you see in the church, this generosity that we're supposed to live in, this life that we're supposed to live in, it's not just a beautiful idea that we repost on social media. It's something that by the Holy Spirit of Jesus, we are empowered to actually live. As we come to personally experience the riches of God ourselves. He's forgiven my sins. He's making me new. His Holy Spirit is presently with me. I know him as my God. He's drawing me and sanctifying me faithfully and patiently and bringing me towards glory. As I experience these things, I'm empowered because of the love that he's pouring into my heart to give generously to the people around me. In Christ City, you can see it. I challenge you to find a more generous community in all of the history of the world than the people of God. There's another arena, though. Not just in the arena of of wealth are, are we changed as we come into the community of the church and see what God is doing and bringing true life. Also, the experience of God in the church, it corrects our experience and our, our perspective about sex as well. Because when we look at the world, we think that true life must be found in sexual satisfaction. It would be tempting for us to think that. 
But it's not true. It's not true. Sex will never satisfy you. Building your identity around your sexuality will never satisfy you. It's not what you were made for. You know, I said earlier that no one logs on to Tinder looking for transcendence. Well, I lied to you. Everybody logs on to Tinder looking for transcendence. Everybody does. Because the longings in our hearts for sexual fulfillment, they point to a greater longing. Our souls that are meant to be satisfied, not in sex. It's not a big enough vessel to satisfy all the desires of our heart. We need something bigger to be satisfied in relationship with God that we are made for. It's there that we'll find our meaning and our fulfillment and our purpose. There's a little book called The World, the Flesh, and Father Smith. It's written by Bruce Marshall. And in it, there's this interesting interaction between this provocative woman who's not a believer, uh, who's trying to, to bring this temptation to this priest. Her name is Dana Egdala. She's talking to this priest, Father Smith. And as she talks to him, she concludes her conversation. She's a bit disappointed with this guy. She thinks he's nuts. She says, well, religion is just a substitute for sex. And then Father Smith responds to her in this profound comment. He says, I still prefer to believe that sex is a substitute for religion. And that every young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Christy, it's true. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O Lord. St. Augustine said it best. And sexual satisfaction will never be the satisfaction that fills up your soul and satisfies the longing of your hearts. It's only as we come to see who God is through Jesus Christ in his church to experience his forgiveness and his love and his grace that we begin to be satisfied in our souls in a deep way, in a full way that the world around us can't touch. It's only there that we'll find a river of delight far greater than any momentary pleasure. See, life that is truly life is only found in submitting our sexuality and everything else under the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. This is where life is found. You know, what, what's troubling to me, though, Christ City, is that, that even though we all experience this fear and this doubt, we don't often do what Asaph did. I think that a lot of times in our fear and our doubt, rather than, than move towards the community of worshipers of Jesus, in our fear, in our doubt, we tend to pull away from them. Think that we can isolate ourselves, stop worshiping, stop reading our Bibles, stop praying out to the Lord, stop filling our hearts and our souls with songs of worship and adoration for him, and just turn away. Let me be clear, that, that turning away is a decision of the will. You might feel like crap in that place of doubt and fear, but you're making a decision to turn away from the place where true perspective can be found. See, Asaph, in his fear and doubt, he pressed into the community of worshipers. He went to the temple. He remembered what life really is, and he discerned the way that reality really works. Look at verses 17 to 20. He says, then I discerned their end. It's truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. You know, the, the metaphor I've been using has been this, this cave diving the metaphor Asaph is using is mountain climbing, right? Ascending into life, relationship with God. And he's looking, he says, look, God, I, I thought they were on stable ground on the high perches of reality, but I look and I see you put them in slippery places. How they are destroyed in a moment. 
swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Look, Bernie Madoff had once $17 billion. Now he has an 150-year life sentence. Harvey Weinstein indulged in a life of pleasure that I'm sure was admired and wanted by many of the people around him. Now, he has a 23-year prison sentence. But Christ said, you don't have to do illegal things for it all to come crashing down. You don't have to be the rich and the famous and the powerful to suddenly realize that the life you've been living is no life at all and can't satisfy the longings of your heart. So the word of God claims that if you're trying to find ultimate life and happiness, living in opposition to him and his word, turning away from his mercy and his kindness through scripture drawing us into life, the word of God says it's not going to work out for you. There's a stern warning in this passage that destruction and death is that way and only life is this way. And the reality is that it doesn't have to be destruction for us. There is good news in this passage. Because in this passage, we are offered life. Look with me at our last point, life, in verses 21 to 26. Asaph says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Christ City, I think that sometimes we truly believe that life is out there to be had. But, but in the places that we're at in our lives, we don't believe that we deserve it. We don't believe that, it, that it's for us. Maybe life is out there for those other people. It's not for me. What I love about this passage is how full of grace it is. Reminding us that God gives the life that he offers, not to people who have perfectly lived their lives, but to people who Asaph says are brutish and ignorant like beasts before God, full of envy and jealousy of things that will never give us life. That's the kind of people that God gives life to. People like you and I, who offers life to us as a gift of grace. And look at the life that God offers in verses 23 and 24, Asaph said, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. This is the life he gives. You hold my right hand. There is a strong and loving and good father holding my hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. I want to show you a couple of things in this verse to see the life that, that Asaph's talking about. First, he's talking about God's presence. He says, I am continually with you. It's you who hold my right hand. He's in the presence of God. Christ said, do you know that, that all of the pleasure of this world, all the things that you will pursue will fade away? And even your own capacity to enjoy them will fade away. 
they won't satisfy you. And even in your lifetime, you'll see them stop satisfying you. But the pleasure of knowing this good God that Asaph understands, it will never be taken from him. It can endure through death. It can endure through suffering and sickness. He's continually knowing and loving and living and being loved in the presence of God. Second, Asaph talks about the way that he has a guide, a guide in the murky waters of life. He says, you guide me with your counsel. That is good news. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I, I feel this all the time. It's hard to figure out how to live life. Have you experienced that? It's hard to know what actually will be the right way to pursue my life and to make decisions that will actually lead not just to maybe some more financial gain, but to happiness. How do I do that? How am I supposed to be a good spouse, a good father, a good person in relationship with other people? How am I supposed to navigate my career choices and my business, life in my city, life with my neighbors? I don't know how to live my life. But here Asaph says, in the murky waters, God is his guide. Guiding him with his counsel, by his Holy Spirit, to the community of his people, living and loving and worshiping Jesus Christ together under the word of God. There is life and there is guidance for us here at Christ City. The third thing Asaph talks about is the security that he has in knowing this God. He says, afterward you'll receive me to glory. Now, I don't know what your inheritance situation is like. Maybe some of you guys have, have a good inheritance coming. I always look at people that, that have a good inheritance coming and I'm a little bit envious and, and I'm also uh, a little surprised and just shocked and amazed by the way that that gives some stability to their lives. Maybe there's some risks that they can take that they wouldn't otherwise take because they know that they're, they're secure with what's coming. But the inheritance that Asaph has, the inheritance that we have, it also goes together with adoption. Just imagine whoever you are being adopted into wealth and power beyond your wildest dreams. Imagine if you had, maybe this is not a good example, depending on your thoughts on this, but imagine you had a permanent place at the table of the royal family in Buckingham Palace. Would that change your life? Knowing the security, knowing that you are one equal with them. Christ City, we have something so much better than that. So in the gospel, we are offered by God an eternal place at his table, in his home. Co-heirs with Jesus. You don't just get a little bit of inheritance. You share the inheritance of Jesus Christ, of God giving to him a new heavens and a new earth and a world without pain or suffering and death forever in the presence of God for all of eternity. That's what he gives to his people. In a place where you are loved, not as an addendum to his family, but sharers of the love the Father gives to Jesus alone. You are loved with the very love that the Father gives to Jesus. This is our inheritance. We are secure in him. And it's not going to fade. It's not going to decay. War won't make it vulnerable. Death won't make it meaningless. What could you possibly pursue in this world that's like that? You know, after his fear and doubt, with his mind and his heart full up with the goodness of God, Asaph turns to God again in astounding praise. Look at verses 25 to 26. 
Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you know God like that? Because you can. Because you can. I, I was on Twitter this week and I saw there's a pastor that, that I love to, to read, uh, Dana Ortland, and he posted this tweet. And I, it was profound and it struck me. It said this. It says, the Jesus that you are bored with is not the real Jesus. The Jesus that you are bored with is not the real Jesus. He said, the real Jesus is irresistible. This is, what, this is what Asaph knows. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Christ said, do you want to know God like this? If you do, you can. You can start today. You can start like Asaph, confessing your sin, coming before God with honesty, agreeing with him about who you really are as you've tried to pursue life away from him. You say, God, I've been brutish. I've been ignorant. I've turned away from life and his life to try to find it in the darkness and the recesses of sin, and it's not working. Confess that to him. Repent, turn away, trust in Jesus. Say, I want to follow Jesus Christ. Would you forgive me? Would you fill me up with your Holy Spirit that I would know life that is truly life in your presence, that I would follow you for the rest of my days? Jesus loves to give life. Won't you come to him to receive it? You know, Asaph ends this psalm, and we'll end our sermon this way. And he concludes with clarity and conviction and a surprising 180-degree churn. Look at verses 27 and 28. That for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I might tell of your works, that I might praise your name far and far and wide, that life is this way, the life you long for can be found here. So Christ City, really quick, how can we come to the same confidence as Asaph? How can we make the same 180 degree turn towards the oxygen mask of life and away from death? There's one way. It's only by fixing our eyes on Jesus. It's one way. It's only by fixing our eyes on Jesus. Look at Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 2. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We have a great and glorious good Savior. And he's gone before us. Just like you experience temptations and fear and doubt in this world, Jesus experienced the same things. All of them. And yet he kept his eyes on the prize. 
the upward call of life. And through his death and his resurrection, he has brought eternal life, a real new creation into this world by his spirit in a new temple in his church. And he's been at work here for the last 2,000 years. And he will continue. So Christ City, as we end, let me exhort you, turn your eyes to Jesus. Turn away from the things that you're pursuing and pursue him instead. As we come back together right now, as we're going to start worshiping uh, in song and in every way, would you pour your heart out into it? Would you be willing, if you need prayer, to come uh, for prayer underneath the cross uh, as our gathering concludes to receive prayer that you would know this Jesus and his sweetness and in his goodness? Rest in his incomparable goodness. And say with Asaph, when you're tempted, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works.